I must say it's it's good to be back. I've been gone for a little while. My name is Dan. Nice to meet you. If you turn over to Luke, we're going to be going out of chapter 2, verse 41 through 52. Um, One of the things about the story of Jesus Christ is that we have to battle through questions, uh, dynamics, you could say. How is it that Jesus Christ is a man, yet God? It's a, a difficult thing. I remember when I first became a Christian, I actually jumped into that with both feet. I was 19 years old, didn't have enough theological information to do much with, and I remember jumping into books, thinking there's got to be an author out there who just nails it. Um, there isn't. It's a hard subject. Matter of fact, it's a subject that I'm sure came up in a conversation, a dialogue between two individuals, Luke being one and Theophilus being another. If you remember, the Gospel of Luke is written not because Luke had time on his hands or was interested in writing and getting published. Luke happened because there was a guy named Theophilus. We met him in the first five verses of chapter 1. Luke said, I'm going to write an orderly account of the life of Christ. And so Theophilus could be certain, that's the idea of certainty, that what he'd been taught That word there is catechized. In other words, he'd been brought up to believe a certain thing, and he wants to make sure. So Luke was tasked with writing down the details, interviewing the people. That's how we know the story of Mary, Joseph. That's how we know Anna, Zechariah, Simeon, Elizabeth. Because Luke took the time to make the interviews. Some of the events that happened in, in silence and in aloneness of the book. Have you ever thought to yourself, how in the world did we get that information? Certainly inspiration is all inspired, but there was a task that Luke went out and like a sideline reporter stuck a microphone in someone's face, got the details. Now, one of the things that's got to be, it's got to be lurking in the back of Theophilus is how in the world does the Messiah, how does God become a man? It should be not only lurking in the back of your mind, but I bet it's made it on the dinner table for some discussions. How do you answer that? How do you figure that out? Do you know the passage that we're going to look at today? It's the only description of Jesus as a teenager we have in the Bible. There's only one event, one event described. One author records it. Only Luke. And I think the reason why he records it is because Theophilus needs to know about it. He needs to know that if there is this man who's been announced, and, and clearly has been announced, we saw from this, there's an announcement by the angel Gabriel to Anna and Zechariah. There's an announcement to Mary and Joseph of the virgin birth, the confirmation of Mary visiting Elizabeth, the birth of John the Baptist will be this um, this go-before bullhorn John the Baptist in a situation he's born from parents that shouldn't have kids. Announcement to the shepherds that are just blazing in the sky. Then Joseph and Mary and their faithfulness and then Simeon announcing and then also also confirming this entire story thus far has been about the supernatural dynamic of who Christ is. 
But in the back of Theophilus' mind, he has a question. But is Jesus like me? Is he normal? Is he supernatural so that he skates through life? So that everything just comes easy? What does it mean that he can identify with me as the Hebrews writer will tell us? How can he identify with me? He's got to be really human. But how in the world does that happen? Because he's the God man. I think that's the title this morning I'd like you to think about. This idea of normal. Not normal. There's a tension there that you can uh, sit in a library for all of your life. You're not going to understand. But Luke puts it forward to us on the other side today. The supernatural, not normal, dynamic angels coming in and virgin birth and all these themes that you say. This is incredible. This doesn't happen every day. God comes near. Now comes the idea of normal. What's he like? What was he like as a teenager? And that's what we're going to think about today. I think, though, I'd like you to think of a theme here, this normal, not normal. I think God has seeded all of the truths that we discover in the Bible throughout signs. And he shows us things normal, not normal. For example, let me give you an example of something that is normal yet not normal. Something that is common to everybody in this room. Matter of fact, you're wearing it today. If you look at your hands, if you notice you've got swirls and ridges, you've got, you've got a fingerprint. Do you know that fingerprint was formed when you were inside your mother? You know, it's, it actually changes over time. If you read the scientific journals, depending on the fluid that was involved, depending on the length of time that you were in the womb, All these things come down so that these ridges, these valleys, these ups, these downs, these swirls are unique to you. Nobody else has them. Matter of fact, did you know, I thought this was fascinating. Identical twins have different fingerprints. They're identical and yet they're not. Common to everybody is fingerprints. Yet your fingerprint is unique to you. Normal, not normal. Unique, common. I think that's the idea. As we scratch on the idea of what does it mean for God to become a man, this normal man is not normal at all. What does that look like? And Luke takes a run at this subject. None of the other gospels take a run at it. And this morning you're going to learn about it. And what we learn is, is that Jesus, while being a normal teenager, normal boy growing up, he's not normal at all in the sense of what he's passionate about. And we need to learn of this because we need to know it for our own life. Now, if you're over in Luke chapter 2, before, and if you have a teaching guide, you'll see this. Uh, We've got to do some background work. When it comes to understanding this passage, because as we've gone through it, before we jump in and read the passage itself, we've got to understand where is, where are we at in the story? As I've read out those different interactions between people like Simeon and Anna and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, 
the angels, all of that stuff has taken place. And now we arrive, if you look at verse 39, it says, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Now, this is very, very important because we need to understand the context in which the passage that we're going to look at. In other words, you only understand the story in the moment if you understand the past story. Reminds me of the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. If you've ever seen that, we watch that every year at my house. Certainly at the front end, you've got some Roman Catholic galaxies talking to one another. It's a bit strange, black and white, but the point of gratefulness and gratitude comes in at the end. But if you know the movie, George Bailey starts off with thinking about his childhood, things that he's done, thinks about being at the, the ice cream shop, sliding on a level, shovel, level, a shovel on the ice. And all through it, everybody else leaves the town. They go to live their life. But George doesn't. George does what's necessary. And throughout the entire story, by the time we get to the end, he starts thinking he's going to have to take the rap for somebody who's incompetent, a family member. And the story comes that God helps him. And he sees that his life has been actually wonderful. He can't measure it by the things he's missed out on or the things that other people have done that he wanted to do. He wanted to travel the world. He's got to see that he has a wonderful life right in front of him with all of the relationships he has. You know, the end of that story only makes sense if you understand the beginning of the story. In other words, gratefulness only makes sense when you've gone through difficulty. When you know the front of that story, the back of the story has punch has power and in this story that we're going to get in today you have to understand what's going on between verse 39 and verse 40 there are vital events that take place that are not written in the gospel of luke now why most likely because matthew has already recorded this let me give you a rundown of what happens between verse 39 and 40 because he talked about returning into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. There's the arrival of the wise men. The arrival of the wise men takes place. A warning by the angel of the Lord of Herod's jealous intent. Jesus travels to Egypt. He escapes with Joseph and Mary. Then he returns to Nazareth. There's a slaughter of the children in Bethlehem and in the surrounding region. We learn that from verse 16 of chapter 2 of Matthew. Then the death of Herod. Then the relocation to Nazareth, not Bethlehem and Judea because the son of Herod is ruling in that area. All of that stuff takes place between verse 39 and verse 40. Now, how in the world do I know that? Well, I know that because if you look at verses chapter 2, verse 24, when Joseph and Mary come to Jerusalem, notice the sacrifice that they bring. They bring turtle doves, the cheapest of the offering that they could possibly bring. They don't bring lambs when Jesus was being presented. They bring turtle doves. Now we know that when the wise men came, one of the things they did in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 2, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So in other words, the wise men couldn't have come by the time Jesus was being presented because they would have had the resources necessary to buy a lamb. 
The other evidence we have, if you read chapter 2 of Matthew, at the end of it, you have the recording where it says that, and then he went and lived in a city called Nazareth in verse 23. So what happens here is that Luke is sticking this story in there. And the background is that all of these turmoil things are happening. Why is he not write it down? He is assuming you know the stories. Because he's starting to inject real world reality. You see, up until this point, we've got angels. We've got these meetings in the temple. We've got these celestial visitations of shepherd out in the field. We're still kind of isolated. The story now, this is real life. Babies have been slaughtered in Bethlehem. Not just the city, but the surrounding area. Herod's gone mad. He wants to keep any king off the scene. Herod dies in 4 AD. So there's a significant period of time that passes by between Jesus goes down into Egypt and then to fulfill the scriptures, he comes back up out of Egypt. God is already beginning to weave the story of Jesus and his identification with the people of Israel, even as a baby. People that are really human. People that had real issues of trust belief and hope. And through all of that, we start to see encroaching onto the story, the idea of normal. Up until this time, the not normal, the big ticket items, the splashy stuff's been happening, but all of a sudden, people have died. Wise men have came. The word is spreading that there's a baby who's been born who's going to change everything, and he's beginning to grow. So by the time we get into this passage today, we start seeing Jesus, 12 years old. And as I said, it's the only passage in the Gospels you're going to find talking about Jesus as the preteen. Up until this time, we've just seen him presented after 40 days. Then all of a sudden, all of those things take place. And now we find ourselves with he's 12 years old. And one of the things I want you to pay attention to in his humanity is his passion. What is he passionate about? You can find out a lot about somebody based on what they're passionate about. I was reading an article this week that talked about people's passions, people's hobbies. I confess I've never heard of some of them. Artisan cheese making. Lost on me. But there are people out there that are uniquely crafting cheeses and experimenting with flavors because they're passionate about cheese. Other people, urban exploration, the history of a city that has gone down and they explore what does it look like and they look at pictures from the past. Maybe you've seen this in social media. They'll go to a place where it was filmed in World War II and they'll see a picture of something and then they'll go back to that exact same place and they'll see what it looks like today because they're passionate about history. Things like extreme sports photography or uh, microscope photography or guerrilla gardening. This is a thing where people go into cities and uh, they find plots and they garden there to beautify it. People are passionate. I don't know any of those people. But as I get to know their passions and as I read about these things, I know that that guerrilla gardener likes to see beauty in the midst of decay. I, I don't even know them. The people that are the artisan cheese makers... They care about flavor in a way I've never thought about. The details matter. The idea of extreme sports photography. 
the idea of adrenaline. I don't know them, but I know they love that. Now, when we look at Christ in this passage, we start getting to know who he is. Theophilus needs to know, is he real? For Feast of Passover, when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy stayed, Jesus stayed in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem and searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. He said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. I think there's three things in this passage, three unique things that show us who Jesus is as a preteen boy. The first thing that I would say is he's passionate about his father's story. His father's story. If you look at verse 41 and 42, uh, it says there that um, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. You know, the story of God throughout the Bible rotates around feasts. In other words, if you look at the feasts that Israel observed, the different celebrations, you find woven within those the story of God, his interaction with people. See, what you celebrate is what you cherish. There's three particular feasts, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Each one of those feasts are uniquely explaining some quality of God's story. The first, the idea of Passover, happened in the spring, the 15th day of Nisan. It's a one-day feast, and then there's seven days that follow the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Very often they're interchanged. But you have one day of a feast, and then you have the seven days that follow. That's what they're talking about here. So this idea of the Passover is the Passover that was celebrated in Exodus chapter 12 where God passed over the houses that had the blood applied to the doorposts. We'll come back to that in a moment. The second feast that they were required to go to Jerusalem, all the men were required to go, not the women, which is interesting, was the second one was Pentecost. This is 50 days after Passover. You know, what's interesting about that is, is in the Old Testament, That was the story of the law was given. 50 days after they come out of Egypt, God gives them the law, his self-disclosure. Who I am, I tell the truth. I provide. I'm faithful. All of those things are reflected in the law. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't be unfaithful. See, all of those things, it's a self-disclosure. 50 days after, and that's what Pentecost means in the Greek. It's 50. 
We see in the New Testament that story of God's faithfulness to reveal himself 50 days after what happens at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is given. The law is given. Now Christ has satisfied the law. Now the Holy Spirit is given. You see how this works. His, his festivals are ways that he unwinds himself in front of people. Gets you involved in his story. The final one was the Feast of Tabernacles. That happens in the fall. That the people of Israel would spend time in tents or booths, remembering God's faithfulness throughout the wilderness journeys. That when we're not faithful, he is. And through each of these things, each of these festivals, they would remember. Now back to the Passover. And this is the story that they went up to see every year, the Feast of Passover. What's interesting here is in Exodus 23, 17, three times the males were supposed to appear. It's very, very clear. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. The first thing I say that I find very interesting, his parents went up. In other words, Mary, you could have hung out. He's 12 years old. He's got family. And yet they're going up there with him. It says to me that they were incredibly faithful. Not women wouldn't just always go. This is an arduous journey. This is between 70 and 80 miles walking. So imagine this is a festival in which you, if you live in this area, you've got to walk to the Atlanta airport and then you've got to walk back and then you've got to take a bit of a journey going back towards it. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine planning for that? A large family growing up, planning for us a week away with the kids we had, all of the food you've got to have, the plans, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. You've got to get a donkey, you've got to get animals, you've got to walk, you've got to figure out who's going with you. The relatives, when are you leaving? I'm leaving on this day. When are you coming back? I'm coming back on this day. All these details. This wasn't easy. Could have been easy for Mary to say, well, I don't, I don't need to go. She wanted to go. I find that fascinating. The males had to appear because the males need to lead. The males need to lead in the temperature of who God is and the celebration. The idea is that the males have to come back and infect their family with a passion for who God is. But she's there and says every year at the feast of Passover, that every year, Luke is stressing it every year. They didn't call out. Every year they made it a part of their life. And they, when they went there, Jesus was 12 years old. They went up according to the custom. And remember, Passover was a time to celebrate. It was the last of the plagues that came through. Remember, the oldest son would die unless you had the blood applied to the doorposts of your house. He says it's the Lord's Passover. It's when the Lord will pass over if he sees the blood. If he doesn't see the pass, he doesn't see the blood, he doesn't pass over. He visits his judgment on that family by taking the life of the oldest child, the male. And it says in Exodus chapter 12, 1 through 28, you can read it. But it says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over and no plague shall befall or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, why is it this time that Luke picks this story? Why not the festival of of Pentecost or Tabernacles? I think it's because of this. We know from the Mishnah, which is an early writing of customs and traditions of the Jewish people, during the end of the meal, 
the oldest son would ask the question, why is this night different from all others? And then Joseph would answer the story of Passover. He would teach on this. And Jesus, in a way that we can't understand, he's putting together the pieces. He's putting together the mental story. There's an identification of the Holy Spirit with his life. He knows Isaiah. He knows the story of Exodus. He knows the story of Abraham. He knows the law. And he starts identifying with the fact and the Holy Spirit is drawing him through the truth of the Bible to say, you are the Messiah to come. You might ask yourself a question. How did Jesus know? Did he always know? No, he didn't always know. How did he come to know? How do you come to know anything? How do you come to know the truth? You come to know the truth because God is gracious on you and he gives you the truth in your mind. He directs you to the truth and you see it. You recognize it. You absorb it. You own it. There's the same thing with Christ. He didn't wake up one morning and go, ha ha, I'm the Messiah. No, there was this, as he's reading, his heart burns within him. And he's coming to the realization. And when he asked that question of Joseph, and Joseph tells that story, at the end of the feast on the first night, he begins to put it together. We don't know when it fully came together, certainly by the time he's 30. But this is when he's 12 years old. He's getting ready to approach 13. Why is that a big deal? Why is it even mentioned 12? I mean, what's a big deal? Why not eight? 13, he's considered a man. Bar mitzvah. In other words, this story, Luke is writing this to Theophilus. He says he's getting ready to become a man. In other words, look at his passion. His passion before he was even a man is for the father's story and how he identifies with the father's story. So much going on in Jerusalem. There's lambs being bought. Say Josephus says that There was a swell of possibly up to 2 million people at this time. Everything's crazy. Things are being bought. The priests are sacrificing. The Romans have guards there to make sure everything happens. And Jesus is starting to fixate. He's fixating on the Passover, the story for why he is there. That's one of the first things we see from this passage, that Jesus was passionate about the Father's story. Look at the second thing in verses 43 through 50. He's passionate about the father's house. The father's house. Now, when we think of a house, we often think of um, four walls and a roof. This house isn't just the idea of a building or a structure. It's the idea of God's authority, God's presence on this earth. The feast ends. And by the way, notice that in verse 43, it says, when the feast had ended, they were returning. Um, know this, that many Jewish people only stayed for the feast. They would stay one, maybe two days. But for this family, the feast had ended. And the presumption is, the story is, that they stayed for the feast and they stayed for the seven days that followed. In other words, they're serious about this. They've been there for a long time. They're tired. They're worn out. It's like you at the end of vacation. Yeah, you want to get the vacation, but you can't wait to get home kind of moments. It says the boy stayed in, behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. How did his parents know it? I have seven kids. I've left my kids in places. I've done it more than my wife because she's sensitive. I'll admit it. They're not in the car. 
They lose. (laughs) This feels like a counseling session, so let's stop. (laughs) But the idea here is the Jewish people would do something really interesting. They'd put the kids in the front, and the parents would walk in the back. Why would they do that? Because they knew if the parents are in the front, they're going to outwalk the kids. So they'd put the kids in the front, and by the time they get here, uh, they've been here eight days, they're leaving, they've met Uncle Bob, Aunt Sue. Billy, our cousin from Capernaum, uh, Francis. I mean, they didn't really have these names. I'm making this up. But the idea, the relatives, hey, okay, uh, you take them, I'll take them. It's kind of like uh, that Macaulay Culkin movie. You know, they fly to France and leave the kid. He kind of deserved it, by the way, but that's another story. <laughs> so the idea, they miss him. And, and how is it that, it's interesting, they went a day's journey. Because they traveled together. They traveled together because they were scared of robbers. So you got this big pack of people, the assumptions there. They're going to travel between 15 and 25 miles. They began to search for them with their relatives and their acquaintance. They did not find him. They returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Can you imagine that? I mean, Luke just writes this down like a guy. I think if a woman was writing this, which is another story altogether, she would put the emotions down, what she was feeling. Am I really a good mother? All that stuff. But man, you got to see the panic here. Now, after three days, the idea of a day out, a day back, a day looking, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, now just picture this here. They probably go back to where they were staying. Is he here? Because it makes sense he'd be here. What about the relatives we visit? What about friend's house? All this other Then they go, he's really passionate about the father's house. Did you see his eyes light up when we... We're talking about Passover. Did you see that? Let's go to the temple. But this time people were clearing out. The people that were hanging out in the temple were the PhDs from around Israel. This is their convention. They're hanging out talking. This kid, 12 years old, shows up. And notice what he says here. Listening to them and asking them questions. This is the way. That they would interact. But it's weird because Jesus has a spin unlike anybody's spin. He's asking them questions. He's probing. What about this? And what about that? Have you ever thought about this? Ever thought about this? You snotty-nosed 12-year-old kid. I've been doing this for 60 years. But that's a fantastic question. I've actually never thought about that. I've never thought about the law and the Passover and the blood and the idea. Who is this kid? Whose parents are these? No parents are around until one moment. Parents show up. He's our kid. Notice what they say. All those were amazed at his understanding, his answers, his parents saw him. And I just imagine this. They see him across the temple area. And they see him interacting. They're probably embarrassed. What in the world is he doing? He's asking those questions that we don't understand. His mother said to him after she gets there, Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And at this point, some people think Jesus is a little disrespectful. I don't think he's disrespectful at all. Why? He said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? The reason why he's not being disrespectful is, is when if you look over in chapter Uh, 1 verse 32 of this gospel of Luke, it talked about the fact that he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. 
Mary, you were told by Gabriel that he is going to be the son of the Most High. In other words, he's going to be passionate for his father's house. When they show up, Jesus is now the one who's perplexed. What did you think I would be about? Now all of a sudden we start seeing this human normal Jesus exhibiting a passion that is so not normal, not like you, not like me. He is so passionate for the Father that he is immersing himself in the truth, in the revelation of the Father in the scriptures. It says there that Mary treasured up all these things. She began to think of it. She didn't understand these things. And this isn't the first time. In Luke 2, 16 through 20, when the shepherds came and appeared to her, it says that she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She's putting it together, people, a lot like many of us in this room. We don't understand theology in its purest form. We don't have all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. But Luke is building a case that is Something he can't argue against. He's a normal person, but he's not normal. Then look at verses 51 and 52, and we'll come to a close here. Not only is he's passionate about this father's story and his house, but also the father's business. Look at verse 51. He went down with them and came to Nazareth, and that's where they come full circle to Nazareth, that 39 and verse 40 that we talked about, and was submissive to them. Now, why does Luke write that? Again, that's one of those things you go, Luke, why are you writing that? Because if you have the brain power of Christ, if you can ask the questions that he asked and you can stump the leaders that he stumped, you'd throw off your mom and dad, wouldn't you? Mom and dad, I got it going on. Let me answer the door. Let me speak for the family. It was submissive to them. Wow. That normal, not normal. I need him to submit to them because I didn't submit to my parents. And see, when Jesus was treated as if he'd rebelled against his parents on the cross by God's wrath being poured out, there was no guilt in him. So that's why he could rise from the grave. If you've been unsubmissive to your parents, that and was submissive to them should ring in your ears. Oh, I'm so glad. So glad he was submissive. He was about his father's business. You see, he had come to be the Messiah sent from God, and he's put this together. He walks in perfect conformity to the law, the father's business. Always doing those things that please the father. That's one of his favorite statements. If you read the Gospel of John, you bump into it all over the place. I always do those things that please the father. It pleased the father. That was the business of the father that Jesus was about, he was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. This is a statement again. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Notice throughout all of these stories, everybody's throwing their hat in the ring. I believe Christ. I see the story. I recognize the story. I have a person of character. I wouldn't make this up. Anna, Simeon, Mary, Joseph, all of them are saying, They're vouching for the story. When Luke sticks the microphone in their face, they go, I was there. And let me tell you, this is what happened. And now all of a sudden, who do we have entering in the scene? Jesus increased in wisdom, how he thought. This human increase in stature. He got bigger, grew up in favor with God. 
Now all of a sudden, God enters the scene. God's a witness. Throughout all of this, that verse 52 is a catch-all so that you would know that Jesus is normal. But you also remember, he's not normal. The idea that he's ordinary enough to relate to you, but he's extraordinary. He's supremely unique, so that he might be your savior. That's why Christmas time, I think, has a unique punch. Because this idea of humanness and transcendence comes into view in the life of Christ. It should change the way you think. It should change the way you live. So two questions I have as we've looked at this story about Jesus and his passion for the Father's story, for his house, for his business. Two questions. Jesus took on human form to identify and relate with us. How does that affect you today? If you begin to think during this Christmas season no one understands you're lonely, stop right there. He gets it. He understands. In all the ways that you could possibly, no way possibly understand, he gets what it's like to be a human. Without sin, but a human. He qualifies. He's normal. And this story helps us understand this. He can identify. He can relate. Does that make you worship? Does that change the way you have those mental conversations in the car at your house? Those times where you want to pity yourself. No one gets me. No one understands. Oh, that's not true. The next thing is Jesus is also divine so that he could rescue us from being lost. He's divine. He's the Savior. He's the God-man. He's the one who took his humanity, put his attributes in his back pocket, lived the life, and yet not for one moment was he less than divine. We know that from the testimony throughout Scripture. So that when you cry out, he hears. You see, if he's just a man, he can only help you like another person can. But since he's divine, he can identify with you and now he intercedes for you and he can pay for your sin on the cross. Isn't that incredible? Isn't it amazing that normal, not normal? This isn't just like a fingerprint that you look at. I mean, that's, that's cool. This is amazing. So this morning, if you're here, if you've been in the doldrums, as they say, be encouraged. Jesus is normally gets you, but he's not normal. He can rescue you. Cry out to him today. Put your trust in him. If you haven't trusted him, you're in the fool's road. Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ. Life will not make sense. I was telling to a waiter the other day. I said, you can get everything in life you want. Interesting, his name was Gabriel. You can get everything in life you want, Gabriel, but if you miss Christ, you've missed it all. I'd say that to you this morning. He's normal. He's not normal. Theophilus needed to know it. We need to know it. Would you pray with me as the band is coming up? I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we're grateful for your kindness. We're grateful for the fact that this story is in here. It's the only story of you when you were almost a teen. And yet it's a story that we all need to know because it shows us that while you were human, that you had extraordinary passion for your father's story and house and business. And because of that, 
and the fact that you are divine, we can be rescued. You're ordinary enough to relate to us, Jesus, and yet you're supremely unique enough that you can rescue us. That is such good news. Stir our hearts with that. Change us. Help us to think differently, act differently, to honor you and enjoy you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I know that as we walk through a passage like this, there's going to be other questions that you have, and there might be changes in your pattern of your life. You might be sitting here thinking, I need to change. I've been having a pity party, and I can't seem to get out of it. I need to know more about this relatability of Christ. We have a group of people, our Next Steps ministry team. We'd love for you to, on the bottom of the teaching for you, maybe help you oriented, you find yourself being depressed. We'd like to walk beside you. Maybe there's a question about the text as far as how it relates to you and the divinity of Christ and how can I put my hands around that again. That's what the Next Step team is there for. So we hope you take advantage of that. That's one of the things that we are excited about here because we don't want to let the truth just sit here on Sunday. We want it to make it to Monday. And we recognize that sometimes that's not easy. So if you'd stand together, let's sing better as one day to our Lord this morning.